0: Thank you for listening to First Farragut United Methodist Church's podcast. This week, we continue our series, Love Your Enemies. Now here's Chuck with the message. Oh, Jonah, what a strange passage. Uh, Biblical scholars have struggled with placing the book of Jonah in a specific literary genre for decades or centuries. It's considered one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, but Jonah doesn't check off many of the boxes that the other Old Testament prophets do. Some scholars actually believe it was written a little more as entertainment than a lot of the rest of the Old Testament. There's humor and there's some adventure and drama in this short little story, and they're as important as its meaning to its meaning as the spiritual application that we often derive from it about following God's direction. Think about it. This whiny, petulant prophet who despises the people to whom God has told him to go and be prophetic, then gets swallowed by a gigantic fish for three days, then gets vomited out on the beach, and he still doesn't get what God is trying to teach him. More than that though, typically Israel's prophets are fiercely obedient to the law while their audiences are the stubborn sinners. And they're quicker to kill the prophet than take seriously his message. Jeremiah, for instance, he's told that he will experience so much opposition that Judah's most powerful priests and kings would oppose him and that he would stand with God alone at his side. Unlike Jeremiah, however, Typical of Israel's prophetic tradition, Jonah is not only resistant to Yahweh's will, he actually succeeds in winning over his audience, which doesn't happen very often with the prophets. And he does so with a five-word sermon. Don't get any ideas. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That was his entire message. What's even more astonishing is that Jonah's sermon doesn't even mention the possibility of God's mercy and God's grace. What kind of crazy tale is this? This reluctant, bitter prophet and repentant sinners. Welcome to the world of Jonah where idolatrous sinners repent and Israelite prophets resent God's most basic fundamental attributes. Despite its somewhat humorous and ironic aspects, Jonah's resentful response to Yahweh's mercy actually echoes a sentiment present in his larger culture that is disdain for the Assyrian empire in which Nineveh was located. This view is expressive expressly and graphically very graphically depicted in the book of Nahum which relishes in God's destruction of Nineveh. Nahum was the sermon that Jonah hoped he could give It's hard to blame Jonah for feeling this way sometimes because, after all, the Assyrians were responsible for destroying the northern kingdom of Israel, subjugating, taxing, and oppressing the southern kingdom, destroying the Judite city of Lashish, and otherwise causing chaos and destruction all over the ancient Near East. Well, you're very likely familiar with the story of Jonah, especially the parts before the scripture I just read, but let's recap briefly. The story begins with these words, Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preached against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Chapter 1 proceeds to tell all about Jonah's response to that call by setting out to, quote, flee from, to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. He Boarded a ship bound for Tarshish, but God sent a great storm that threatened to sink the ship. The sailors cast lots to try and figure out the culprit, and the lot fell to Jonah. He admitted he was fleeing from God, and reluctantly, the sailors threw him overboard to soothe God's wrath. And the storm abated. But, quote, Yahweh prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, Chapter 2 of Jonah is Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving prayed from the belly of the fish. The prayer ends with Jonah's pledge to offer a sacrifice to Yahweh and to perform vows that Jonah has prepared. Yahweh spoke to the fish and it vomited out Jonah on the dry land. Chapter 3 tells the story of God calling Jonah for a second time to go to Nineveh and to preach, it the message, preach to it the message that I give you. Jonah obeys the second call. Being inside of a fish for three days might do that to a person. He proclaims the short message that God gives him. The king of Nineveh responds by issuing a royal decree requiring penitence, hoping that if Nineveh repents, God will relent in his punishment. Our reading today picks up at the point where God is changing his mind about destroying Nineveh we pick up with the last 12 verses of this book that has no clear resolution. This strange and frankly humorous account of Jonah dealing with the bush and the worm. Great writer and preacher Frederick Buechner explains the story of Jonah like this. Within a few minutes of swallowing the prophet Jonah, the whale, what we call fish, suffered a severe attack of acid indigestion. And it's not hard to see why Jonah had a disposition that was enough to curdle milk. When God ordered him to go to Nineveh and tell them there to shape up and get saved, the expression on Jonah's face was likely that of a man who had just gotten a whiff of trouble in a septic tank. In the first place, the Ninevites were foreigners and thus off his beat. And in the second place, far from wanting them to see them get saved, nothing would have pleased Jonah more than to see them get what he thought they had coming to them. It was the result of a desperate attempt to get himself out of the assignment that he got himself swallowed by the whale instead. But the whale couldn't stomach him for long, and in the end Jonah went ahead, and with a little more prodding from God, did what he'd been told. He hated every minute of it, however, and when the Ninevites succumbed to his eloquence and promised to shape up, he sat down under a leafy castor oil plant to shade him from the blistering sun, and he smoldered inwardly. It was an opening that God could not resist. He caused the castor oil plant to shrivel up to the last leaf, and when Jonah got all upset at being back out in the ghastly heat again, God pretended to misunderstand what was bugging him. Here you are all upset out of pity for one small plant that has shriveled up, he said. So what's wrong with having pity for this whole place that's headed for hell in a handcart if something's not done about it? This is one of those rare instances in the Old Testament where God's wry sense of humor and it seems almost certain that Jonah didn't fail to appreciate it. I identify with Jonah sometimes, as I'm sure some of you do as well. And I'm not proud of that, and you shouldn't be either. Because if we're ranking these Old Testament prophets by their attitudes and they're getting it, he's got to be near the bottom of the list even in spite of his message being successful and the Ninevites turning away from their sin and toward God. But we often echo Jonah's main grievance. Those people over there, they are wicked. They deserve to get comeuppance for their godless ways. They certainly don't deserve the same mercy, grace, forgiveness, and goodness of God that I've experienced. Like so many of us, Jonah thankfully receives God's acts of deliverance and grace directed towards him, but he developed a sense of entitlement toward them and a sense that extending them to others was a ridiculous thing for God to expect him to do. And that's the first lesson I want us to consider from this story this morning. It's that our ability to love others who disagree with us, those who don't think or believe like us, begins not with them but with us recognizing the gift of our own redemption, something Jonah still misses at the end for all we know. And again, that's where the strange ending of this story comes in. Jonah's anger about the demise of the bush shows us that when it comes to those enemies, those wishing to harm us, those with whom we share completely opposite worldviews even, we think the only proper response from God should be judgment to restore justice. Jonah is angry about something as small as this worm destroying this plant, giving him shade. But God presses beyond Jonah's petty anger at plants back to people. As the Reverend Timothy Cargill aptly points out, the absence of a final response to God from Jonah, yes, God gets the last word here, transforms our laughter at this petulant prophet into a nervous silence as maybe we begin to realize the joke is not just on Jonah, but on us as well. Tony Campolo, a preacher and writer and sociologist whose ministry and writing and preaching was a huge part of my call to ministry and my theological education, uh, and I've heard him say this many times, Uh, he used to begin a lot of speeches and sermons like this. Last night, 3,000 children in the United States alone died because they didn't have their most basic needs met and you do not give a damn and what's more many of you are much more concerned and offended over the fact that I said damn from the pulpit than the fact that I said 3,000 children died last night because their basic needs weren't met I think that's sort of what God is trying to tell Jonah here too You're much more concerned over something petty like the fact that you're a little uncomfortable in the heat because that worm ate that bush than the fact that 120,000 people would have perished if not for you doing what God asked you to do. The second lesson I think that we can learn from this is that we shouldn't label those with such extreme differences from our own as enemy in the first place. It used to be that Hitler... Adolf Hitler was the most frequently offered proof that God couldn't love and forgive everyone. Or what about Stalin? Or Charles Manson, even though he killed far fewer people than those two, he seemingly had that same evil inside him. Or Osama bin Laden, or go down the list. There are lots of extreme examples, of course, of of these people that it's easy for us to deem as outside of the realm of God's grace. This is how Jonah felt about the Ninevites. It never seemed to cross Jonah's mind that even though he himself had directly defied God's commands, God had still pursued him with persistent love. At least the Ninevites had ignorance of God as an excuse and then even repented and turned to God as soon as they heard and understood the message. Unlike the prophet himself, he ran the other way. It never seemed to cross his mind that if God were unforgiving, God would have let him drown in the storm. It never occurred to him that the pagans sailing the ship, in their attempt to spare Jonah's life, they acted more like God than he did. It didn't occur to Jonah that the giant fish was more obedient to God than he was. Jonah serves as an example of what we call negative hope. He hoped to the end that God would change God's mind and stop being so loving and forgiving to Jonah's enemies. He sat on that hillside under that shade of that plant, still hoping that he would see God crush that entire city. This attitude of Jonah, and perhaps many of us, is one of the greatest stumbling blocks to discipleship in the church today, I'm convinced. We all, and I'm starting with myself here, have the capacity to think and act like Jonah And and many of us act on that capacity. It makes it hard for the church to be the church. If we can know in our hearts, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that God is loving and forgiving and still resent what that looks like in the world beyond our own, how can we be disciples? How sad when those who have not been introduced to that love and forgiveness act more compassionately than those of us who have. How sad when we so often sit on that hill looking down at the city so caught up in our own comfort or discomfort, our own rigid certainties of right and wrong, our own certainty that God couldn't possibly want to love them as much as God loves me, that we miss God's powerful act of transforming the city right before our eyes. Jonah failed to understand this one basic truth. That is that the Ninevites were God's children, created in God's image as much as he himself, a Jew, was Church, this is a hard lesson for us to learn. It's especially hard for those of us who want to argue about big things like politics and theology, all the way down to little petty things like what music we use in church or what color the paint is on the walls of the building. It's hard for us to understand that those with different opinions and convictions from ours are as much children of God created in that divine image as we are. I will close with with this short story. Um, During one of the wars between the English and the French, two ships met in a fearful encounter. It was too dark and foggy, however, to distinguish friend from foe, but each ship had reasons to suspect itself engaged with its enemy. When the darkness lifted and the fog lifted, both ships were seen flying the English flag. They saluted each other and grieved sadly over that disastrous mistake. I pray this morning that the dark and fog of our own war with our enemies be lifted so that in the light of morning we can see what we have in common, that we are all children of God created in God's image, rather than all those things that we suppose are too polarizing and divisive. May we never stop calling out sin and wickedness, but may we do so in love and in full acknowledgement and gratefulness that no one, not even our worst enemy, Not even the Ninevites are beyond the love, forgiveness, and grace of our great God. It is in the name of that God, creator, savior, sustainer. Amen. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week where we learn to love the enemy within. See you then.